You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Here are your hosts, Fran Chismar and Tom Knezic. We have some really exciting news today. Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar. And I'm Tom Knezic. Uh First, welcome to our Earth Day episode. That's right. Uh, Fran, do you know how old Earth Day is? I, I do, but only because you you, you mentioned <laughs> yeah. it earlier, so I'm not going to – I did not know – before you mentioned it in the office this earlier. is the the 50th anniversary of earth day so super exciting i, uh, I would not have guessed that it was at me all either i but then again when i look at it and say oh it started in 1970 i don't i still feel like that wasn't that long ago i wasn't alive yet but that was the year i was born? like it was that i don't that long ago. i don't remember it as a kid i i don't remember but i was a kid but it was i don't remember going to earth day festivals or anything like that i don't remember it being a thing yeah but but that's it's 50 years of, of promoting environmental protection and um and why the environment's so important and, and uh well why we need to protect it so but anyway going on to our big news we uh we got an email the other day that uh that we broke into the top 25 of science and nature podcasts on apple Podcasts. wow i was not expecting that that was really surprising yeah yeah i we, like we've been saying, we were we were impressed with how many listeners we were getting, but we didn't think it was top you know, twenty five worthy. You know, and probably less than fifty percent of our listens come from Apple, mm-hmm. from Apple Podcasts. Yeah. I, I want to say maybe like forty percent of our yeah. listens come from Apple Podcasts. So to be ranked twenty fifth, uh, you know, I think at like all time we're ranked like fiftieth yeah, we already. Were- we were pretty high, which I was surprised by. But that's a, a big thank you to all our listeners and, and followers for for making that happen. You're a part of our our success, thank our moderate you. success. It, it, you <laughs> know, honestly, the the whole thing is very humbling. Um, and Tom and I have, have talked about this on numerous occasions. I don't know if we necessarily have talked about it on the podcast, but we that the number that we were hoping, of, the number of listeners that we were hoping for, we were willing to go a lot less than what we have and to be happy so that just the response has been been like i said very 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 humbling especially after only two months so we appreciate all the new listeners welcome uh we have some more new states arkansas south dakota and mississippi wow we're down to we only need 13 more states before yeah, we have close. nationwide dominance <laughs> <laughs> uh also we do appreciate the five-star reviews and the very well-written review from nc patrick thank you so much for leaving that on apple podcast uh for the rest of you, please make sure you like, rate, and follow us. Uh, actually, right now, right now, do it. We're going to pause for just a moment so you can do that. All right, and we're back. Uh, so after a month of voting, we finally have a winner of the the Native Plant March Madness contest we put on, and Highbush Blueberry smoked Purple Coneflower at the end. It was uh, it wasn't even close. I, I got to tell you, I'm really happy about that, and and I know this is is really going to sound like sour grapes, but. Be, and and that's because it purple coneflower beat out my pick to win the bracket uh as as well as it, it that plant was also my favorite plant i had iris versicolor uh picked to win and echinacea beat it out the first round but i just want to point out just for the record that purple coneflower isn't even native to new jersey it's it's an introduced native it's yeah, not it's a true um, native if, if you look at usda and bone apps and all this thing it lists it as a native but it 
all the states around New Jersey, it listed uh, at least on Bone Apps as an inventive plant. Yes. Um, that was kind of introduced there. And uh, if you really look at its core area, it's like Missouri, Arkansas, uh, Illinois, I think. And once you get outside of that main core, it seems to get a little less common from there. Awesome. So you're so, saying it doesn't sound like sour grapes? Yeah, uh, you still sound like a sore loser. <laughs> That's <laughs> but, fine. But the, the, I the am. voter I was am. nationwide, so we don't know where these people were voting from that that beat Iris versus Colin. That's that's so, fine. That's but, fine. Uh, I'll take it. But anyway, back to our friendly wager. Um, I'm probably going to wait for the the milkweed shoots to start coming up. I've really All wanted right. to cook them the last few years, and you're going to be my my guinea pig for All when right. I actually cook them. All right, I will have my EpiPen ready uh, just in case. And uh, I think we should actually um, we should make it a grand event. Maybe we can. How about how about we invite some of our past guests? in yeah, to yeah. sample this like not new mm-hmm. guests we'll have past guests come in uh maybe two guests because we can do up to four people mm-hmm. and uh we can all try it yeah yeah and so. hopefully this time's up within the milkweed shoots are actually coming up and we might have yeah. to do milkweed pods or or something in the fall uh, <laughs> at the that, rate we're going but that's fine that's but, fine that's I'll, yeah. I'll take that but uh anyway how was your your social distancing weekend you know it was really good it's 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 funny because i've mentioned the last podcast because and part of it's because we've had so many guests that are birders that I am, have becoming more and more interested in birding. And um, when I got to my fiance's house on Saturday and I walked in, Agatha had her foyer filled. Now I hadn't mentioned this to her. Um, she had her foyer filled with new bird feeders and and bird feed, and I was just kind of shocked. So she, you know, in plural, like bird feeders, like it was <laughs> wow. it was a bunch. So. Uh, she had been printing out information for her son on his uh, bird study merit badge uh, for Boy Scouts, and she started becoming – as she was reading it and printing it off, she became so interested that um, she went out and bought all this stuff. So we actually spent all weekend trying to identify birds by sight and then just by sound. Um, she actually her, – her property actually – backs up to a bird sanctuary so uh, designated so uh we did pretty good with the sound surprisingly we were able to do five and, and which birds were they all right so i think some of them were were easy just because mm-hmm. um blue jay uh cardinal mating call uh the morning dove those were the ones some of them we had to listen and then kind of research because we couldn't see where the sounds were coming from but the black cap chickadee and my favorite the white-throated sparrow uh mm, you yeah. know and the funny thing is i don't remember hearing that until this year and your uh suzanne our president actually said the same thing she was mentioning that she heard us a, a bird singing and she was enjoying it when i played the sound she's like that's the one so it's hmm. it's it's just something that's that's really we hadn't heard before mm-hmm. so we were getting really excited uh you know we're excited about the bird sanctuary in her backyard and, and and getting to experience that and it's you know that's one of the things to be thankful for with the social distancing uh you, you wonder if you've never heard it before because you were too busy <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and yeah. now that you had time and you were paying attention you actually heard it so it's a great place to observe and now she's officially obsessed so agatha actually changed her <laughs> facebook bio to novice bird enthusiast <laughs> so <laughs> she was saying she can't turn her mind off yeah. like every time she hears a bird and she doesn't know what it is she has to immediately know what it is so we're becoming we're becoming obsessed so how was how was your weekend uh my wife and i pretty much just laid low for the entire weekend um she's 33 weeks pregnant as she's, of today she's so, getting yeah, close wow tuesday uh 
I don't even know the date anymore, but <laughs> <laughs> but as of today, she's uh, 33 weeks pregnant. Wow. And, um, we're getting to the point where we don't want to travel too far. Not, gotcha. Not that we have anywhere to go anyway, yeah. but uh, we did some good practicing of, of lounging on the couch and <laughs> nice. staying, staying inside. But Enjoy these moments because yeah. your life's oh, about yeah. To, yeah. to change dra- in a good way. Your life's mm-hmm. going to change drastically. Yeah. But, but we did get some stuff done around the house and got a little yard work done. And then Sunday night I went out and, uh, and did some bird listening of my own and awesome. was scouting for turkeys and trying to find where they roosted. So... Uh, and it's just amazing, uh, especially with the the lack of cars going down the road, how quiet everything is, but how alive, like the wildlife and and just spring is. Uh, like a, a spring evening is not quiet at all if you and, can drown out the cars. I'm wondering how much the wildlife population or habitat will change after mm-hmm. all this, since there's less human interaction yeah. with these. Mm-hmm. There their habitat areas yeah, in, in good ways and bad yeah, ways in ba- I'm sure, too. exactly it's but it's it's funny how much more you notice when you're in tune to it mm-hmm. it's uh it's yeah i've been enjoying that myself yeah. Yeah. but anyway it's uh it's time to introduce our guest um so as everyone knows monarchs have been in decline for for quite a few years now and uh, this has to do with a variety of things uh one of the main reasons is a lack of breeding and foraging habitat um, especially with milkweed, monarchs need milkweed for to lay their eggs on, and uh, that's what their caterpillars eat. Um, and because there's not as much milkweed out there, there there's fewer monarchs, so they just don't have enough places to lay eggs. Uh, and there's a lot of organizations trying to do something about this, and um, we're lucky to have one of them on. It's a, a organization called Monarchs in the Rough, which is a, a joint effort between Audubon International and the Environmental Defense Fund. Um, and Monarchs on the Rough has now helped to establish habitat for monarchs and other pollinators, really, across North America. So without further ado, uh, further ado Marcus, um, why don't you take a second to introduce yourself? Hi, thanks, Tom. Uh, thanks, Pat, for, for having me. My name is Marcus Gray. I'm the Director of Conservation Initiatives at Audubon International. So I, I manage our landscape-level stewardship programs like Monarchs on the Rough, our pollinator initiative, but also um, our raptor relocation network that's moving birds of prey from airports to relocate um, to avoid air, aircraft collisions and, um, and other projects like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so if people that aren't familiar with Audubon International, we work primarily with golf courses to improve environmental stewardship. Uh, we have a certification program that we serve as a third party um, reviewer for the environmental practices on golf courses. So think about it like best management practices that you might see in the agricultural space. We apply those to golf course operations. Mm-hmm. That's really awesome. Cool. Actually, one of the issues that we deal with a lot, actually, is when we're supplying plant material to airports mm-hmm. with uh, just their concern for habitat, which could mm-hmm. ha- could bring in birds that could cause, you know, yeah. plane malfunctions yeah. right. or crashes. So it's it's uh, it, that's that's something that we've dealt with quite often. But before we actually dive into the questions, I, I just have to revisit this because we we kind of talked about this on social media going back a couple months ago. Did, did your father really use an eastern red cedar as a Christmas tree? I've been dying to ask you that question. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, yeah, he, he did. Um, he grew up in north-central Missouri, and that's that was sort of like the only option um, at the time, you know, in the, the 50s and 60s. Um, you know, they didn't really have the option, opportunity to go to a tree lot and, and purchase one, so they would go out to the pasture um, and, and cut one and bring it back to the house. Smell didn't bother them at all? Just, no. I guess you learned to, you learned to love it? 
smells like yeah, Christmas. You, you, yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, it's what you're used to, right? It's, it's all what you're what you're exposed to. But no, the big thing for me is when they dry out, they get so prickly. So I'm, yeah, yeah I'm not not too big of a fan of them. But um, yeah, you know, that, that is what they used um, growing up. So yeah, he's a big fan. <laughs> be, be, before I worked at Pineland Nursery, I, I worked at Princeton Nurseries, and one of my first jobs there was I was. Uh, the brokerage manager. So I would travel around three to four months of the year just purchasing plant material to to resell. And I was down in Tennessee, probably like central Tennessee, like mid-December, and I was driving around with a nursery owner. And right in the middle of one of his open fields, there was someone digging an eastern red cedar out of his field. And it was the only tree there. It was growing wild. Then he stopped. He goes, hold on. I got to go take care of this. So he goes out for a while, and then he starts walking back, and the guy starts digging the tree again. I'm like, is, is everything okay? He goes, yeah, that's my neighbor. That fool's going to put that in his house as a Christmas tree. I told him, if that's what you want to do, go for it. <laughs> well, you know what? It's, it's funny Funny enough. You know, I, I went to grad school in, in South Dakota, so you know, tree encroachment is a real problem in the prairie mm-hmm. and, and things like that. But um, there's a, a biologist that I know in, in Johnson City, Kansas, and they actually had um, – as, as part of a stewardship project, you know, they need volunteer labor to come and remove these cedars that were mm-hmm. overtaking, overtaking the fields. And, um, they, they had a Christmas tree event. They had like, I think it was 90 people came and, um, and took trees home. So, so they're removing them from the pasture and improving the habitat, but then they're, they're making use of the, you know, the plant that people are taking them home and using them as their, as their, uh, Christmas trees. That's so, a yeah, great, kind, great use for that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that yeah. That's yeah. a fantastic use for it. So go ahead, but, Tom, uh, I'll let you start off. Yeah, so Marcus and I, we've, uh, well, I shouldn't, we've, we've, you've been working on Monarchs in the Rough, but you tied Pinelands Nursery into it, uh, and that's mm-hmm. one of the projects I've been working on with a lot of help from from Lydia Ray in our office. And sure. um, what started out as, uh, I'll be honest, Marcus, it started out as kind of a, I don't want to say a pain, but it was a little bit confusing. <laughs> <laughs> but once it was, we got, it was different from what was, we're yeah, used it to was dealing with. Very different from what we were used to dealing with, taking, um, taking seed and then shipping it in half pound increments all over the place. But uh, mm-hmm. now over the past, I guess it's been two years or, or almost more, it's really one of the more rewarding projects I've gotten to work on with the nursery. Um, just looking Appreciate back at that. all the, the habitat that's we had a part in, in helping create just by uh, sending the seed in different places. But um, yeah. can you tell us a little bit about how that program came to be? Sure. I mean, I, I think that the fact that it, that there were some challenging aspects of it was not unexpected. Um, you know, from our point of view, we're, you know, we're relatively small staff. We're trying to have a big impact, um, trying to, you know, have most of the funding go to the actual seed, uh, costs, you know, rather than, rather than overhead and things like that. And, um, trying to get as much good habitat on the ground as we can. And it's, it's tricky. Yeah. It's, it's the re- part of the reason why there, this was challenging, um, for you and, and, and others even is that, um, it hadn't been done before. So, you know, other seed distribution programs um, that you may have heard about, they would take, you know, packets, say, at that level of seed um, and, and ship around the country. And, and, you know, we learned some lessons from what others have done, um, you know, mistakes that others have made in trying to make sure that we're sending the right seed to the right place. Um, you know, Pat covered it in his um, talk about uh, the provenance and, and the regional applicability and appropriateness of plants. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we covered that really well. And it's, it's not just the the timing, you know, the asynchrony and things like that, but it's really just uh, the fact that if you take seed from one state, say Maine, and you ship it to Texas, not necessarily you're gonna have you're not necessarily gonna have an invasive species problem. The planting's just gonna fail. And so, with these golf course projects, we had um, I guess in 
early, well, mid to late nineties, they tried a similar project um, to Monarchs of the Rough. They didn't call it that, but the industry tried to have wildflower plantings mm-hmm. established across the country, and overwhelmingly, they were um, they were unsuccessful and left a bad taste in some people's mouths because they were primarily providing annual plants. Mm-hmm. So it would look, it would look really good that first year, and then it would just it would just peter out. Um, so people, I, I dealt with that as a legacy early on. You know, people say, well, these things these things don't work. Um, but that's, you know, we plant a diverse um, mix of annuals, biennials, and perennials, and then there's a, a progression of plants over time that, that'll, that'll come on, and, and that's been a lot more successful and helped people um, really get a handle on um, what, the, what the expectations are, are supposed to be. You know, this is a multi-year process um, that takes time to establish. You know, site preparation is critical, especially east of the Mississippi where we have a lot of cool season grass competition, mm-hmm. um, things like that, you know. But the whole thing came about is I, I used to work, you know, probably for, probably for the past five years or so, I've worked primarily on butterflies. But back then when I, when I first really got into it, um, I was working with the North American Butterfly Association, and we came up with the idea of this need that, um, you know, think about things like the prairie skippers, like uh, Powershick Skipperling and Dakota Skipper um, and Regal Fritillary and others that are dependent on these prairies, you know, large, intact prairie systems, <clears throat> excuse me. And we're like, well, we need a network of reserves managed specifically for butterflies. And so we were coming at it from that angle. We actually called it the Butterfly Habitat Network is what we called it. And um, it came down to, it's a great idea, but how are we going to pay for it? You know, how are we going to buy fee title reserves? You know, wildlife management areas say managed specifically for butterflies. I mean, they do this in the UK, but there's some co-management agreements. There's some fee title acquisition, in it, but there's also a lot of just um, conservation agreements, easements, that, but then they count them as the reserves. So we're trying to get that model over here and how best to do it. And it comes to find out, okay, while land prices being what they are anymore, you can't go, you know, land is six, seven, eight thousand dollars an acre, you know, in places that used to be five hundred an acre just twenty years ago. So it's 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 a lot more difficult than you might think, um, or maybe you do understand that it's it's just hard to buy land outright for wildlife management now. And um, you know, we thought, well how are we gonna do this? And and then I got on with Audubon International and as soon as I got here, this is in probably summer twenty seventeen they say, well, all right, well, you know, we work primarily with golf horses. We want to do a pollinator initiative. We're working with the Environmental Defense Fund. But they didn't really have a lot of the logistics worked out other than they said, okay, well, we want to send milkweed seed. And, and, and it's okay, but I want to be more diverse than that, <laughs> you know, yeah. for, more, for obvious reasons. But then it's like, okay, well, how do we pay for that? But the beauty of, of the golf course idea is that, you know, you run into a lot of problems with restoration projects with the riparian buffer um, or what have you where – you do the project and then everybody pats each other on the back and then they walk away and five years later you come back and everything is chewed up by beavers or choked out with invasive plants. You know, there's no, no long-term maintenance. Um, well, that's the beauty of these golf course projects is they have a maintenance staff and they have a budget that can keep an eye on these things and they can maintain them in the future. Um, and that's, that's really a novel aspect of, of why it's good to work with golf courses. So the idea morphed from actually owning the land to working with other people on their land but having this long-term stewardship opportunity, um, as long as the course stays open and, and you know they, they are successful and, and like the planting and things like that, um, so I think it's 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 been interesting how it's evolved into this um, you know voluntary um, conservation measure um, where we're providing and you know working with Pinelands and a couple other vendors to work with a continent-wide network and that see that's that's a logistical problem you know, you know or, or way to attack the problem is it's a lot easier for 
Pinelands staff to talk to 10 other vendors than it is for me to talk to 25 vendors. You know what I mean? Um, we're so already it's, it's, ta- we're already talking to them. Yeah. So and and yeah, actually, yeah, it was right. one of the, the really beneficial things is some of the people that we didn't necessarily have a reason to talk to um, yeah. across the country. Well, that gave us a reason to talk to them. And now we've formed some really great partnerships and friendships with a lot of other seed vendors that are producing native right. seed all across the country. And, well, and that's, and that's the benefit, yeah. And, it, and it's it's scaling up. You know, how do we get people to dovetail different programs? You know, because there's other golf course programs besides Monarchs and the Rough, and we're working with them too. It's like if, if a golf course wants to do, you know, we provide an acres worth of seeds, say, but they have five acres they want to do. How can they piece together from other programs and do that? And then we've done some larger projects, as, you, as you're aware as well. Mm-hmm. Also, you know, um, or we work with Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever to um, – provide the companion seed or the labor they'll like do a youth pollinator event and get mm-hmm. volunteers out to do the planting something like that so all all iterations of how things could look or what's going on depending on where you're at in the country you know i i some of the things that i think that are brilliant about the program is you know when i first learned about it i was like golf courses really that's not you know that's i i think of that being more ecologically barren but it's brilliant if you think about it like you said because you have someone maintaining it maintaining it you have the area for it to actually happen um i like that i think it's diversifying a lot of these golf courses a lot of people that spend time on golf courses to see some of these areas uh but i think going with the half pound increments allows you to allows your your dollar to go so much further Mm -hmm. and get more people Mm -hmm. involved and stretch it further across the country uh but also the provenance is important It, it really is um because you can't just do one package of native plants that right. works everywhere. Mm-hmm. It just isn't. Right. And, and to Fran's point, it's uh, and you, you've talked about other pro or other organizations that tried to do things in the past. The probably the most famous one I remember is when Cheerios took the bee off of their honey nut Cheerios box and then mm. started sending out uh, seed packets all over the country. And when it first came out, I was like, oh, they're really sending stuff from all over the place to or. Yeah. They're, well, they're sending stuff from that's good for one area all over the place. And um, I was surprised to see the backlash that they actually got from it. Uh, mm-hmm. While upset, I was, or while my, myself, I was a little bit upset seeing it. Uh, I was surprised that it, they got enough backlash that they pulled the program. Uh, yeah. So it's really important what you're doing with the sending local ecotype stuff everywhere. And uh, I was really impressed that you guys even thought of that when... Well, at first I might have been annoyed that I had to call all these people up. I was really impressed that that was one of the things that was really important Be, to the program. Because we, you know, for for the the listeners that don't know, we specialize in in more of a northeast ecotype, and that's that's the main area of our business. Um, and to do things right, if you're doing native restorations in other parts of the country, you should be getting that material from those parts of the country or, or the seed source should be coming from that. I mean, it could come from us if we have that seed source, but we don't, our, our seed source mm-hmm. is, is more Northeastern. Um, so we appreciate it from the standpoint that it's the right thing to do, that we're getting the seed from other, other vendors in the right areas to match up the correct provenance mm-hmm. to the area that it's going. Well, and I think too, you know, it, it helps build up a, you know, a relationship between those vendors, say someone in Colorado or someone in Utah or someone in California, you know, a smaller vendor, say it helps build those relationships so that they can help the, help the course scale up over mm-hmm. time, but then also help with this seed supply. You know, as, as folks are finding out, you know, the Southwest 
it's, it, you know, it can be it can be a challenge to get the right seed for the right place. There's just not the supply, mm-hmm. or or the thing that really I guess the place that blows people's mind when they find this out is the extreme southeast of the country. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and the the Florida um, groups are just now getting together. You know, the, the producers are getting together. Um, the, the native plant folks, um, you know, they've got a collaborative going down there now where they're trying to improve that that native seed supply and mm-hmm. and um and fulfilling orders and things like that but yeah that's that's been a relatively recent thing you know if you were if you were in south georgia um three years ago you know two years ago um it, it was it was pretty hard to get the right seed and, and places like you know, talk about whether you know coneflower is native to new jersey well common milkweed is considered a noxious plant mm-hmm. you know non-native yeah. and exotic in georgia Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so we started out working with golf courses in Georgia early on, and I talked to the, um, the folks at, at Monarchs across Georgia um, that I know down there, and they um, they're like, please don't send common milkweed. <laughs> okay, yeah. and so we had a conversation with with you all at Pinelands, mm-hmm. and said, look, we need to do tuberosa or uh, or swamp, you know, other milkweed um, because Georgia. I don't want Georgia being like you are spreading a weed. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. You know, I'm not going there, you know, and like you said, it's, it's, and if a state wants it within a certain no- a distance of their borders, you know, we're going to do that. You know, NRCS guidelines that they want to follow, we're going to follow that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, like I said, it's, it's hard, but then you have places like um, Mexico where there, the seed, just, there, isn't, there are no yeah. seed vendors, yeah. you know, um, that's, that's been a real challenge. And mm-hmm. what do we do there? Um, but, but in those, some of those areas where it's been challenging, like we did a project early on in Puerto Rico, they had their own. They were they were collecting seed on on the island, and they were already growing it out. And mm-hmm. so they were like, "Well, we don't really need the seed, but we'd like to have the sign and be counted, you know." And then we can we can do those types of things too. Mm-hmm. But you know, we're we're almost seven hundred courses, six hundred ninety five golf courses across the continent. Wow. They've planted over a thousand acres. So it's it's you know, we never started out thinking that it was going to be huge, significant acreages, but now we're starting to get there but it was really it was highly visible acres and demonstration plots you know how can we how can we teach and, and help the superintendents learn how to manage these native plants um and you know protect them from chemical applications and things like that um you know per their state trainings and everything else but um the people coming to the golf course say golfers you know thousands of people are going to go by and see these things whereas you do a restoration on a farm you might have 20 people see it on a field day, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, exactly, um, but, yeah. but we've, you've got people cycling through these golf courses, you know, right now is not an example of that, but during the normal activity mm-hmm. level, there's a lot of people that see these signs and these, and these plots. And so they'll take that home and they'll, they'll apply that to their garden yeah, and, or other community space. That's, that's the goal. And I often, when people ask where our plants go and they're surprised they don't go to garden centers and I say, well, they're really going to restoration sites. And probably one of our goals is that they go, in uh in this spot that's a little bit off the highway and people don't even know that it was planted there like five years from now we want people to know that think that's just how it was and uh but now you have something that it's highly visible and that's a good thing too and it's it's changing perception in in a way that we have seen some of these golf courses that we've supplied the seed to come Mm -hmm. back to us for other material Mm -hmm. so they're expanding upon you know beyond just that pollinator habitat to other things and trying to keep it native. Mm-hmm. So they're like, hey, if we're trying to naturalize this, what native grasses could we do for this scenario yes. or that scenario? And it's it's yes. great to see. We've always worked with golf courses, but it's it's started to grow mm-hmm. for well, us. That's, that's good. Yeah, I mean that's and that's the that was you know the the philosophical goal, right? Is that that people would adopt this? They try they try it out, they'd adopt it, and they'd scale up on their own. And we're and we're starting to see that. We we had a member survey that we conducted late last summer. And we found that there there were 173 respondents out of the 500 some that we sent it to, and um, we ended up 
finding out about 160 acres that that we didn't pay for um, oh, that, that wow. golf course is planted on their own so it's yeah it's it's, it's like 40 percent of the people um say that they had planted additional acreage um and then there were others you know that were talking about well I'm, I'm still waiting to see how this goes and then i'll think about it or or um yeah, they intend to, but they hadn't yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, it's 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 been it's been really good in that in that way. Just um, just learning from each other because I you know, I've learned quite a bit about turf management. And like you say, you, you know, coming from a wildlife background, but like like you say, the the wet native grasses work in certain situations. We call the we call the program monarchs in the rough. We should mm-hmm. have called it monarchs in the places you don't care about. <laughs> um, because because um, you know it, it's 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 been you know every property is different, every operation is different, and how we can fit it tailor what we're doing to what they need you know that that's what we're trying to do so yeah some they're in play like you'll mm-hmm. hit from the tee box you'll hit across habitat to, to the to the hole you know um others they're along the sides or along the cart paths others they're well out of play they're, you know they're completely out mm-hmm. of play but they'll have a sign by the clubhouse or something like that so it's it's um it, you see all sorts of uh, mm-hmm. iterations of how this how these things could look and and really depending on the site and then we've we've got others that are like just hungry for more like you said they're, they're coming back um they're trying to see you know the the water quality benefits of these habitats um you know the infiltration planting native grasses you sort of providing habitat but we're also providing these ecological uh yeah. benefits that that we really need you know pr- pr- producing beneficial insects to help control the turf pest so that actually reduces the amount of chemicals that are being used mm-hmm. there's just a whole slew of, of benefits to these these native plants on yeah. golf courses and i was going to uh, suggest that uh, probably a lot of the superintendents are thinking about this and saying, "Oh, I don't have to mow that area anymore. I don't have to keep it looking uh, nice like a, a golf course should be because it's a wild, mm-hmm. out of play area." And there's probably some labor savings just because you're not paying someone to sit on the oh, lawnmower sure. and go over it once a week yeah. or twice a week, something like that. Sure, irrigation, yeah, irrigation, yeah. irrigation yeah. cost, yeah. mowing, staff time, pesticide, I mean, or, or yeah, uh, yeah, chemical, you know, chemical applications are expensive. You know, so yeah, there's there's all those benefits um, mm-hmm. that that golf courses are seeing, and, and um, yeah, it's been interesting. They're able to translate that into um, other aspects of their operation. You it, know, um, it's interesting. So. What where we saw a, a, a lot of it change was Lydia had had taken some time a couple years ago and, and put together 20 mixes um, to make it easier for people that maybe wanted to do something but didn't know how, um, mm-hmm. and it was like pollinator habitat mix. Um, low grow mix things like that just to spell it out within days of publishing them on the website without anything the orders just started coming in a lot from golf courses just because mm-hmm. they they knew what they wanted to do they just didn't know how to do it and if yeah. you make it easy enough they will they will come so yeah and that's what we try to do we try to provide technical assistance and then i know you all you know and the other vendors are, are doing that as well um you know we've got people trying nursery crops or cover crops um, you know, in terms of site prep, we've got people that are removing existing turf. They're just, they're just sod cutting and rolling it up, smoothing it out and planting into that. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got people that are trying interplanting um, with existing stands of either native grass or, or the cool season grasses might be from Eurasia. Um, a whole slew of different things that people are trying. And we actually found that it was it was less than 20%. It was actually 18 and some change percent that were um, using glyphosate for their site mm-hmm. prep. And that, and that, you know, that's why you conduct surveys, right? Because anecdotally, we figured it was more than that. Um, and, and kind of find out that people are trying other things. I mean, they're not putting newspaper down, you know, yeah. or like, you yeah. know, cardboard, like you see in some of the recommendations for like a lawn, you know, a yard residential size project. But, um, you know, if they're doing an acre or more at a time, you know, they're, they're trying different things. Um, uh, we've got a lot of people using prescribed fire, especially wow. in the southeast and the Midwest. Um, there's a lot of prescribed fire. Um, 
you know, the Players Club, TPC, um, you know, they own courses, they're associated with the PGA, and um, TPC, Deer Run, out um, in the Midwest, they're, they're very much into prescribed fire, and what they do, um, they get it done for free, because the local fire department um, needs to do their brush fire trainings every year, mm-hmm. and so they get the they get the burn conducted for free. Oh, nice. So there's... Yeah, so there's ways to piece these things together. Well, we were actually curious. Tom, Tom had actually thought of it was, you know, when when you think of golf courses, you think of of herbicides and, and chemicals to keep yeah. keep that. And we didn't know if that was a challenge. It sounded like it's it's less of a challenge than what we thought mm-hmm. was changing their perception or changing the way they do things. But uh, but I'd even say from just the public's perspe- uh, perception, that's what the public is thinking of and saying, oh, why would you? bring this to a golf course but you make it sound like it's not just uh bringing pollinator habitat it's kind of like a whole change i don't want to say yeah. lifestyle change yeah. but yeah. whatever sure. the whatever the correct word would be for yeah. in that yeah in that place yeah, yeah par- paradigm shift is, yeah is yeah my paradigm shift. That's, that's that's my delusion of grander um yeah. but no i think that um you know i guess it's there's a fundamental lack of understanding about what happens on a golf course and i've learned a lot in the last several years but, you know, people think about spraying drift, you know, mm-hmm. non, non-target impacts and things like that. But the, the equipment that people use on a golf course is so small and so specific and targeted that they really don't have, you know, with the nozzle specifications and the formulations mm-hmm. for the product. And you know, all the, these superintendents have to provide, have to go through um, training at, at the state level, you know, as, as members of the green uh, industry, you know, mm-hmm. um, they, they have restricted use applicator certification they have to keep up with and, and with Audubon International we get their spraying records and their scouting reports and things like that and help them identify ways that they could reduce that um, but you know I think yeah there's a legacy of a time where you know say like the 90s where people had a lot of money and people and, and things were managed very intensively and that's that's really scaled back um, mm-hmm. quite a bit you know it's there's a cost that we've already talked about and then there's the wanting to do the right thing and be more environmentally responsible and not you know, you're applying when there's a, a, a an actual problem, not just going through the motions. Oh, it's May fifteenth. I'm going to spray for X. Um, it's like, is the pest there? Um, and what's the least amount of product that I can use to control that problem? Um, and that and and like you said, there's a lot more management, um, a, lot, a lot less mowing going on. Um, and you know, if you look at the average golf course in the United States, the average is about 150 acres, and there's so that's the average. There's there's half that are larger, you know. Um, but yeah, they've got a they only use these thirty percent of the area for the game, mm-hmm. yeah. so there's there's plenty of area where they can do these projects. And I started out being very conservative about that, but here recently um, at the golf industry show mm-hmm. in January, um, that it actually came out that it's it's probably more like there's three hundred thousand acres that we could potentially do these projects on um, across just the United States because we have wow. about half the world's golf courses in the United States. So um, you have fifteen thousand golf courses. You know, there's 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 room to do these projects and, and others. Um, and I think that the fact that golf courses are increasingly the last remaining open space in a lot mm-hmm. of communities, there's a lot of pressure to provide these ecological services, um, whether it's clean water, you know, places to recreate, clean air, wildlife habitat, and, and whatnot. And it's so. it's nice to see less use of chemicals as well. I mean, and and it's mm-hmm. it's really changed. When I started in the nursery industry, it was over 30 years ago. I don't even know if I told you this, Tom. So the when I first started, the Monsanto rep would come around when he was trying to sell Roundup. He would actually drink a shot of concentrated Roundup to show you that it wasn't harmful. <laughs> and I wonder – I look back and I'm like how how uninformed he was 
I wonder if he's even alive. You know what I mean? Like after, because I can't imagine how many shots of Roundup this guy <laughs> drank. It's just, it's it's just nice to see the shift. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't think that's on the label. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. What? Go ahead, Tom. I'm sorry. So, um, you talked a little bit about the acreage of the program. Uh, I was yeah. going to say, how many states is Monarchs and Rough active in, and uh, which state has the highest presence? Yeah, so it's that's that's sort of shifted over time, in terms of the the hot spots, as as, as it were. But we're we're operating in 47 states right now um, that we've had projects in. So you know, with the with we had initial in 2017 we had initial pilot program in california with the baker's dozen courses and then in 2018 we had a countywide rollout so um you know if you're asking about canada ontario has the most in in canada Mm -hmm. but we're we're in six provinces in in canada now but um yeah so so we had that countywide rollout and everybody signed up we got a bunch in florida um and then we got the the national fish and wildlife foundation grant for uh, you know basically 2019 and 20 and so that that made us very geographic focused, um, west of the Mississippi primarily. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so we have, with that scale up, you know, that that sort of shifted things around. So, right now, um, if you'd asked me six months ago, I would have said Minnesota would have been our, our hot spot. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, just you know, it's got so many courses. You know, Minnesota has over a thousand, like a thousand golf courses. Wow. Um, you think about people that go to the, to, you know, Texas winter Texans or snowbirds go to the gulf coast or go to florida you know well they all go home in the summer in minnesota <laughs> yeah. so they yeah. want to play golf and they get back up there I, uh, so I the think, weather's good there i think minnesota is really progressive okay. as well as far as rain gardens things like that like they're one of the yeah. states that i think is is definitely more progressive across the board so yeah that yep. it, it it surprised me at first and then the more i thought about it, it's like no nah, it really mm-hmm. really isn't that surprising but sorry didn't mean we, to. we had some no that's a no not a problem and then so like that's it's shifted somewhat as we've grown in volume that um illinois is actually Mm-hmm. Uh, you know the hot spot for the country and that's it's centered around chicago and some of that is because we've had um good partners like through the monitoring venture um like the field museum and, and others that work in in urban exurban chicago that have basically been promoting the program for us um you know they've been giving talks to superintendents and th- organizations and things like that so so there's there's a big center of these golf courses around chicago um and then florida because there's more golf courses in florida mm-hmm. than anywhere else more of our Audubon International members are in Florida than anywhere else. Um, we just we got a lot that signed up. We, there's about 40 golf courses in Florida that are in Monarchs and Rough, um, and most of those came in during that 2018 continent-wide wow. sign up. So yeah, it's, it's sort of shifted, and then and now we're now we've gotten the East Coast, and, and things are really starting to pick up as you move west. You know, we're starting to get into Utah, Nevada, California, mm-hmm. and, and the Pacific Northwest. You know, and you know, from basically from Vancouver. Um, down through California, we're starting to get more activity out that way as well. We, what was surprising to us as far as listening for the podcast, Illinois is actually in our top five states. You know, considering we're we're based out of the Northeast, and you would figure really? that's yeah. But it's you know we have some colleagues out in Illinois in that Chicago area mm-hmm. that that do some really great work that that we're uh, we're proud to know them and what they're doing. So it's it's mm-hmm. it's nice to hear that that that's one of the hot spots actually. Yeah, and I think I think the. The Corn Belt, Great Lakes area—they've they, really been driven home the message of that's the core of the, the monarch breeding range currently. Um, and then that I-35 corridor is very important for migration. So I think there's just been you know so much people want to put habitat somewhere, and then once we're like, oh, we've got golf course money, they're like, okay, and they just <laughs> they just were already primed. I awesome. feel like, um, but like the New England states, they are very very um, 
wanting, you know, proactive wanting to do things too. So, like, you know, just the New England states, the seven of them, you know, we've got 50 golf courses amongst them. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, yeah, it's just, it's interesting that if you look on, on monarchsfromtherough.org, I actually have a map that's fairly up to date of uh, where the courses are located. And you can zoom into an area and go, oh, that's interesting. Or look at that corridor, how that's tied together. Or, or oh, here's a gap. You know, I'm looking at you, Mississippi. Um, you know, like where, where we, we need to we need to fill in, you know, because it's like for the longest time I had none in West Virginia. It was like a gaping hole just staring at me. Mm-hmm. That, I was like, that why? Is, what? That yeah, is but the, now we've got a few. That is the only state east of the Mississippi that has not tuned in to the podcast. Oh, no. I've never really since I called him out. <laughs> called him out. Yeah. Uh, I hope so. <laughs> uh, what, what would you say, given this, like we've talked about where you're – better successes have been what is what have been some of your biggest challenges with this program well i mean i, I think you know the seed aspect of it is definitely a challenge i mean i i understand why now that um people don't track their nationwide seed distribution <laughs> yeah um you know it's 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 you know hodgepodge and you're you know very piecemeal i guess in, in terms of getting the information back out and the and, and the challenges have been a lot in um just monitoring the success or how do how do we best keep track of how things are, are going in the in the field um and so we're starting to do that now so like in, you know we get past all this virus stuff in 2020 our goal is to monitor the ground truth some of what we were told in the survey from the participants directly and um and see how that compares to to what we're told but yeah just just the logistics of a continent-wide coordinated seed distribution program like it's so much easier just to mail seed out and just don't care anymore mm-hmm. yeah um yeah and so, so just trying to keep track and then a thing that i guess the unfortunate thing the way things are with grants and, and competitive grants is that we, we all are competing for the same pot of money so we don't really identify as well as we could ways that we could work together and then once you get the funding everybody's like i've got this idea i'm like why did you tell me this six months ago um <laughs> like i'm pimped in like I, yeah my hands are tied um, or, you know, like, oh, I've got a source of seed for Ohio, you know, or I've got a source of seed for Utah, you know, okay, great. Like, <laughs> let's do that, you know. Um, but it's just, it's, it, yeah, it's, it's trying to stay within the framework of what you applied for and what you said you're going to do. And then people come up with new ideas. Let's do this. And I'm like, well, I can't. So, like, you know, bless their hearts. Like, people in Ontario continue to sign up for Monarchs the Rough. And I'm like, okay, well, technically, I don't have money for you. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so then I'm, I'm trying to find additional sources of funding to help cover the cost of those of those plots so it's yeah it's it's unfortunate that like it would be great if we could treat everybody the same but that's not how grants work you know if you're in watershed x more than likely that watershed is going to be where the grant is and your neighbor across the street if they're in a different watershed they're not going to get the money you know and that's yeah. and that's just it's it's almost like a car dealer you know if you miss the deal today and you go and buy <laughs> your car tomorrow you're kind of you missed it i mean and, um, and it is a, a grand effort. I mean, it's it's not just one specific area, it's, and it's not even just one country. I mean, it's it's across yeah. the the continent. That's 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 a grand on taking. It's I, yeah, I appreciate that. and and I can you know, and it's and there's a lot involved in that. Like you said, like monitoring it and just getting feedback and and surveys and things like that. It's mm-hmm. that's for a small staff. That's quite an, an accomplishment. And I, I appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate. It. Yeah, it's it's my my delusion of grandeur. I guess it was it was it was delusion, and then people started funding the delusion. And then I had to make it happen. <laughs> yeah. so, I saw, so I relied very heavily on, on folks like there at Pinelands and, and Minnesota Native Landscapes, mm-hmm. and then your networks across uh, the country and 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 in Canada, um, just to make it work. It's like okay, we said we're going to do this. Now now let's now we have to do it. <laughs> and and we've been 
we've been successful in, in doing that. I mean, we've got just six acres left to commit, um, you know, under wow. the current grant. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, there's basically west of the Mississippi plus some of the great lake States that are eligible. So we'd like to like to get that done. Um, and then we can write the reports because, um, you know, I know Tom wanted to know, you know, in terms of, you know, uh, future funding and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we are, we are continuing to apply for, for external funding um, to keep this going. And, and by all means, if people would like to donate, that's easy enough as well at auduboninternational.org or through the Monarchs and the Rough.org website. But, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, we've gotten some attention now. We've got some, some corporate um, support that's coming um, for 20 and we're trying to use that as cash match for our grant application to um, the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation. So. I, I mean, the, the thing is, it's like I could see as a goal like someone saying, oh, our goal is to, to do one of these on every golf course, whether, or, you know, that's that's every, yeah. like everyone's goal should be 100%. But it, this is a program that shouldn't end, in in my opinion. Like mm-hmm. you can never get enough out there. You can never create enough of it. And there should be an endless supply of golf courses. Um, yeah. So hopefully, like I love that you're getting corporate support. Hopefully there's more grants that, that can keep this yeah. going because we would hate to see it end because of what it's accomplishing. No, I appreciate that. No, and I, I think that's, yeah, I, I'm definitely working to, you know, pretty hard to make sure we, it, it'll continue in some fashion. But you know, a comprehensive, diverse seed mix provided for free to any golf course who wants to participate. You know, the way that it looks now, that that takes a significant amount of, of, of funding. You know, we're talking, you know, at least a hundred thousand dollars a year to maintain that. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know, if if it becomes, if say we get no further grant money, then it might look like. You know, if we can get money for regional level, um, you know, operations or something like that, or it'd be a member benefit. So if your golf course joins Audubon International, then we can provide milkweed seed or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, it just, awesome. it just, the way that it, the way that it looks now isn't the way that it has to look, and and you know, may not always look that way. So it's, um, yeah, it's we're we're open to ideas of how we can, um, you know, create synergies and, and scale up. And like you said, you know, there's there's fifteen thousand golf courses in the country. There's hundreds of them that were doing this on their own anyway. Yeah. without any help and learning things the hard way. And so we're trying to take the lessons that those folks have learned, you know, the, the early adopters, the innovators, you know, and and distill that down for, for people that are just now getting into it. Um, you know, we're, we're sort of past that initial, um, the early folks, now we're getting into the bulk of people and, and they're seeing how these things are working for their, their peers and, and how can they tailor the planting to fit their operation. You know, some, for some, it might be, you know, what it looks like for them might be a formal garden at the clubhouse. Mm-hmm. Others, mm-hmm. it might be 20 acres of native prairie restoration. I don't know. It just mm-hmm. depends on the site. How, how do you recruit new courses into this program? Like how, what's the, I shouldn't say procedure, but how do you reach out to these courses to, to offer this to them? Well, you know, oddly enough, you know, things like we're doing right now, if we're talking on this, on your podcast, people, listeners that hear about this will often ask me how best to approach golf courses in their town or, you know, that, that, you know, where they go spend the winter or something, um, you know, just direct people to monitorough.org and, and ask, have them ask me any questions that they ha- they might have. Um, but, you know, we go to um, industry shows, trade shows, um, and have a booth. I give a lot of presentations at those, um, at those types of things. Like at the golf industry show in Orlando, um, Dave Caplow from Eco Management, he's out in the West Coast, does a lot of native, native rough native gruff, gr- mm-hmm. uh, grasses um, on golf courses. Um, he and I taught a class to about 50 superintendents um, about about um, these out-of-play areas, naturalized areas for golf courses. Um, and then, you know, we had a webinar um, through the Monitoring Venture uh, last month, and um, 
things like that. So, you know, we, we have articles that come out about the, about the program and it's, then it's just, you know, social media, getting people to the website primarily. So it's been very grassroots in that way. Um, they, they dragged me around and made me talk to people. Is pretty, <laughs> much, <laughs> pretty much how that works. So you, you mentioned the, the fish and wildlife grant that, uh, is just about to run out, but one of the things that always um, intrigued me is that it was always or it was the states west of the Mississippi, and then was it Pennsylvania, Ohio? I don't remember them all. Well, yeah, yeah. How did they delineate what states were going to be included and and what wasn't? Well, just to, for everybody listening that lives outside of our grant area, uh, project area, I tried to get the whole country. Um, so, it's, <laughs> it, it, so, it, so we started out. We started out with um, so so the funders delineate their priority states what those reasons are i'm not privy to all the time but most of them are based biologically right so you know you look at texas you know that's very critical for the southward migration for monarchs Mm -hmm. um and then you look at um the corn belt in the midwest that's very important for reproduction these days you know 80 to 100 years ago it would have been shifted east but with farm abandonment everything sort of shifted out that way um and so those were, and then the Western population because it's doing so terribly. Um, so there was a, an emphasis to want to do work out um, in you know, California, Arizona, Nevada, um, out that way. And um, so those were from the funders themselves. So we started out, we picked ten states within that project area that you know the priority areas that they identified. But we were getting so much interest outside of there. I went back to NIFWF and, and asked if we could expand that out because otherwise Audubon International we're just paying for it from other funding you know internal mostly at that time and um so say like we were only able to provide milkweed and I want a comprehensive planting I'm trying to treat all these golf courses as the same as I can um because then it's apples to apples when we do compare what's going on on the ground what the plant response is butterfly use things like that um if you just plant milkweed or you plant 40 species there's, there's a big difference um so and and there's a big difference in the resilience of the stand but anyway, um, so we started out in, with those ten states, and I said we're getting a lot of interest. Can we? Can I, can I have the whole country? And they're like, you can have twenty-eight states. And I said, okay. It's <laughs> 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 so I'm still I'm still like, can I have the whole country? And they're like, well, you should probably pick you know this current round. I was like, can I have the whole country? And they're like, you should probably pick. You should probably focus on our priority states. I'm like, okay, fine. Okay. So uh, I mean, you know, they if they they tell you what they want to fund, you better you better listen. Yes. So it's um you know it, we're not changing our mission or so, you know we're not changing how we're operating there are things that we're working on you know, it's not mission creep it's just tailoring what monarchs in the rough currently looks like to what they think it should look mm-hmm. like so I mean it's it's been very successful in that way and it's and it's been very you know if we could have done it without the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation and, and people like it the, all these other organizations that are too many to list that provided um, letters of support but they're primarily monitor adventure. Uh, members other members mm-hmm. of the monitor adventure so um you know the, that list is, is there online but it's um it, we, you know it, being able to scale up to the level that we have um is really unprecedented and and um you know like personally it's my greatest contribution conservation contribution um to date and so i you know I, I, I think a lot of the program and I'm very appreciative of people that are willing to try this because, like I said, it's voluntary. And it, um, it's it's impressive, you know. And and very rarely does anyone ever give money without wanting a say in how that money mm-hmm. goes. Sure. Or, but it, it, you know, all things considered, it may not have been exactly what you wanted, but you got a good portion, I think, of what you wanted, which I think is mm-hmm. pretty impressive. We 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 see constantly what people 
the hoops they jump through to, for grants to to make it work. Yeah. And it's it's nice when the, the people that are granting the money uh, have a little little more space for you to to work in. Well, well, I mean, part of the issue is like we didn't know when we started this, we didn't know what the adoption would have been. Yeah. So so we 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 were like we started out. Let's try to get a hundred courses. You know, after the initial pilot program, and let's try to get a hundred courses, and then we got two hundred fifty. I'm like, okay, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, can we continue this? And then, it, then it was, okay, we're applying for this grant. Do you think we can sustain this amount of interest? And then now it's like, you know, moot point now, 2020 hindsight. But um, now it's like, okay, well now, can we continue this? You know, yeah. at what at, at what point? At what point is is there going to be fatigue? And and is adoption going to drop off? I don't know, but there's still fifteen, you know, there's still fourteen thousand courses <laughs> yeah. that that we could potentially talk to. So I I think we're going to be okay. And it's still but in its just, it's always in the back of your mind. It's still in its infancy too, because when you think of how yeah. long it takes for say a, a meadow or a naturalized area oh, yeah. to to establish from a seed mix, it goes through stages before it's sure. mature. So it, it's not going to happen on its first season or its second season. It takes a few seasons. No. So some of these exactly. some of these places don't even know what they have yet. Exactly. And that and that was part of my challenge with um, you know, the the partner at the time that wanted to include monitoring more heavily than I had int- intended initially. Um yeah, it's it's just now some of the courses that were planted in seventeen you know, yeah. Now, now I want to start quantifying what's going on out there, mm-hmm. um, because yeah, it's it's a challenge. If you go out there in the milkweed, yeah, you know, first year they look like a little tomato sprout. You know, they're yeah. not, <laughs> you may not even find them if you, unless you're on your hands and knees digging around for them. So it's um, yeah, I, I'm I'm hoping that uh, this year we'll be telling and we'll show a lot of good um, establishment out there on the ground. You know, and the thing is, you know, the golf courses pretty much at least in our area are shut down, um, but yeah. that doesn't mean that they're you know they're still maintaining it mm-hmm. um so yeah. the, the the groundskeepers and the the superintendents actually have time to look at this stuff and spend time with it and we're actually seeing a mm-hmm. lot of interest from golf courses right now mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. just seeing what they can do because they actually have time to do projects yeah. that they can do throughout the day without any interference um so it's 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 kind of funny i'm wondering when this is over how that changes the golf <laughs> how that changes the golf yeah. course yeah it could yeah it could be um you know maybe with reduced staff or, or budgets or, you know, it could, it could be interesting in, in terms of how much mowing is not going on yeah. and, maybe, and how much mowing is going to continue to not go on. Mm-hmm. Um, or, uh, yeah, like you said, like what, what the maintenance is currently looking like, or is there going to be a willingness to adopt more naturalized, uh, management of, of different acreages that they may control? Um, whereas in the past, maybe they, they did maintain it. I mean, there's going to be a cost associated with that, but I think a lot of industries and golf included are taking a big financial hit right now. Yeah, um, I do too. You know, and then and th- so it's like, what's their staff going to be like? What's their the resources to to plant new habitat going to be like? And and so I, I think we're going to see, you know, the easy the easy way to say is we're going to see all sorts of things. But I think that um, yeah, I think there's an opportunity here to say like, look what good benefits have been happening when we're reducing the ma- intensive management, but the golf courses need to maintain some base level of maintenance to keep the invasive plants out. Um, you know, cause you, you, you all know as well as anybody else, you can't just be like, Oh, mile a minute. That's cool. And walk away for six months. You know, um, <laughs> uh, so, uh, you're going to be buried in something. Yeah. So if, if you don't, if so we need, you know, no maintenance is a maintenance decision is a management decision. Um, and, and oftentimes you're going to regret you didn't do that, especially, you know, we live in a 
human-dominated landscape with a 400-year legacy of introduced plants. Yeah. Um, I don't think no maintenance is the route to go. And, the, and some states have done that, but others are starting to back off of that. And especially when you look at what's coming out of Europe and the UK in particular, their golf courses are being opened up for just strolls, you know, just for recreation mm-hmm. for the public. So I think um, we're going to see some of that here. Um, and some golf courses have started to open up, like New York State just opened back up. But, mm-hmm. you know, there's new, new tea time restrictions and and you know, social distancing protocols like you know you might be walking only you you might be bringing your own bag that sort of thing you know it's uh, i just lost my thought i just compo- Sorry. <laughs> I, no it wasn't you i just completely just went blank on that mile a minute no wait you know I, well oh you know what actually that was it the uh invasives are such a huge problem even not only to, you know obviously to existing forests and, and native areas but especially newly uh planted ones or seeded ones because there's so much more open area for them to take over and the plants aren't mm-hmm. old enough to really battle against that so yeah. i could see maybe going to a lower maintenance once it's established but especially during early establishment mm-hmm. you can't you just can't adopt a, a no maintenance i just don't see you know yeah th- there, no. there's too many factors working against mm-hmm. it no definitely definitely and, and um yeah like you said it's a lot of the competition tends to be cool season grasses, but yeah, there's all manner of things that can blow in or that get disturbed. You know, we have man, um, a protocol for establishment, you know, and, and it's, it's similar to what you see on the farm side of things. It's like, okay, you can scarify the site, but don't dig too deep <laughs> yeah. because you're bringing up all these old wheat seeds that yeah. uh, are dormant. Yeah, very true. So, so, and that depends on the past land use, you know, as you all know, it's just like forestry. You can't, you can't walk into ten stands and treat them all the same and expect the same results. Mm-hmm. It's not gonna. It's not gonna happen. Yeah. You exactly. have to be adaptive. Yeah, you you really have to observe that site and just see what what's gonna best fit that site. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I love when people people ask me a question. You know, I've got foxtail. What do I do? I'm like, well, what else you got going on? You know, send me some pictures. Yeah. Uh, you know, or someone in California said, I've got a wet site or my site's on a hillside. I'm like, well, send me a picture because I don't know. I've never been. Um, so I need to I need to see what's going on. I mean, that's that's a challenge to me personally for this is. I'm, it's unlikely I'm going to be visiting these 700 golf courses. <laughs> no, and there's and, yeah. there's so many factors. Like we'll we'll see if people come like a stream restoration saying, well, I have this going on here on this site. Well, what's going yeah. on three miles up up upstream mm-hmm. from that site? That's really what's causing or could yeah. be causing yeah. this. It's not just your site. You have to look at everything around it to to properly sure. come up with a, a strategy to to fix it or solve it. Well, and it may not be fixable. Been, you know, right, right, and that's been interesting too with with all this is how helping golf courses and their neighbors see how the course fits into the larger landscape. You know, how can, mm-hmm. how can we, how can we tie in to other um, conservation initiatives? You know, say a golf course might occupy a key site for um, in a watershed for a restoration or something like that. You know, it's, you know, let's get water quality testing done. Let's work on buffers. Let's, let's work on bank stabilization, things like that. So the water's coming out cleaner than when it went into the golf course. Mm-hmm. Um, and oftentimes that's, case and that that is eye-opening to a lot of people and then with all the development you know a lot of these golf courses are on the receiving in a feet of stormwater there's not much you can do about that you know no and even in this in our area as as building increases you're pushing wildlife to those open areas too so they're Mm -hmm. they're deer per per i shouldn't even say acre per square foot triples (laughs) triples <laughs> you know and it's right. and then and right. then that's that's a challenge when you're trying to establish new native areas all of a exactly. sudden you have you have deer feeding in areas that they're like oh more more native food for us <laughs> yeah. that's well, this that, is and great that's what we try to yeah that's what we try to get people to plant 
as large of a block as possible, right? You want we're trying to get at least an acre, um, and that's partly because of insulation from non-target, you know, from drift, stochastic events like weather, you know, the parasitic wasps predation, you know. But yeah, the deer, you know, I, how many how, how many of these plants do you want eaten? You know, if it's if it's an acre patch, it's a little harder to get into. It's harder for the deer to eat everything that's out there. Uh, exactly, you have to. <laughs> you, you almost have to. To, to over-prepare, or not even over-prepare, over-produce just to yeah. knowing that they're going to take their share mm-hmm. of it. Yeah. So. Well, I, tell, I talk to people about that a lot too, you know, butterfly gardening, scaling on up to larger habitats. I'm like, look, you're planting things for something to eat. And yeah. and the sooner you realize that, the more sane you're going to be um, because <laughs> something's going to eat it. Yeah. Um, you know, deer, deer resistant is deer resistant until they're hungry. Exactly. Um, no, so, that's and, and I don't think a lot of people realize. You know, you can when you're looking at native plants, you can research all day long what what deer won't eat. But you're right; it's until the other food sources run out. It's it's more shouldn't be deer resistance, like deer preference. Yeah, you know what their yes. first preference is, and then as things right. get worse, what they'll eat. And I, I even remember hearing about a study. Now we're kicking over <laughs> away from butterflies and two deer, but yeah. uh, I remember hearing about a study where. Um, they had a survey where they surveyed all the, the winter loss of all these deer, and every single one of their stomachs was full, but they starved to death because they're eating things that just had no nutritional value. They're just browsing on yeah. anything they could find, yeah. but it yeah. had no nutrients, so they weren't – they effectively starved even though they yeah, were I mean, eating yeah, it's, it's, full. So. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a optimal foraging, right? You can eat a, if, you can eat a lot of low-quality food because it's available, right? Mm-hmm. Or you can eat high-quality stuff that you know, may be harder mm-hmm. to get get a hold of and it's it's how you balance those things I mean, everybody thinks about a, a canada goose and a soybean field you know but the beans <laughs> are really not that good for them the yeah. corn's really not that good for them you know impact their crop and everything else but um they'll eat it because there's just so much available you know are you gonna go to the buffet or are you gonna go to the french <laughs> restaurant it gives you one little plate with like a dollop of something mm-hmm. you know, exactly know. you can eat all day long at mcdonald's off the dollar menu but <laughs> that's right <laughs> nutritionally you're not you're not doing yourself a favor that's right. so marcus i wanted to kick it back to uh, you started talking about the monarch migration, and uh, yeah. I'm, I'm assuming uh, most, if not all, of our listeners know monarchs migrate. But you said something that made me realize I don't even know that much about the monarch migration. When you said that um, the Corn Belt was really important, and that migration had actually shifted west, it used to mm-hmm. take place a little bit further to the east. Can you, you explain that a little bit more, and how there's actually the western population as well? Yeah. So it's yeah. It's, it's fairly fairly complex and, and like I said things have shifted over time. So if you look at the reason why these migratory these neotropical migratory songbirds have declined, why bob white quail have declined, why rough grouse have declined, it's because we have this this sixty to eighty year old closed canopy forest over much of the country east of the Mississippi. Um, and then now we're replacing that with with development and sprawl, you know, also in a non-suitable habitat. <laughs> um, so, so yes, sir, it may be getting more open area, but it's not the right kind of open area. Mm-hmm. So, so if you look 80 to hundred years ago, like, you know, say North Jersey, you, you basically couldn't buy a tree, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, because of, you know, say like in the 17, 1800s, if you look at uh, the charcoal industry production um, and then, and then the canal system, you know, shipping lumber and, and uh, for fuel uh, and, and coal for fuel, um, out of those areas, you know, there was a lot of deforestation. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can argue, depending on what your historic baseline is, whether the Native Americans kept it open or not, 
depending on where you are. Um, I lean toward they probably did because everything's named something, something prairie um, <laughs> or, or, or glade. Or, you know, if you look at the Southeastern um, Southeastern Grassland Initiative, Dwayne Estes mm-hmm. down there, you know, every, everything, he's, he's always looking at such and such savanna or, you know, what, you know, something wallow related to bison or elk or something. But, um, you know, I think that it's a great depression era time, you know, thirties and, and, and then up through world war two, the area was largely agricultural. And, um, after World War II, farm abandonment, everything started to grow back up. And there for a while, you know, a few decades, the landscape was very conducive to things like rough grouse, monarch butterflies, you know, things like mm-hmm. scrubby, weedy, out-of-the-way, odd areas, you know. Um, and then the trees grew up with the environmental movement. We started protecting more trees, um, you know, which has its benefits. Um, but now we're at the point now we've got this mid-serial, we've got these middle-aged trees where we really need, for wildlife value, we need more young trees and we need more over-mature trees, or what people call old growth. Um, that, that's where the wildlife value is on the tail ends. All the stuff in the middle is not really helping anything because there's no light getting to the ground. It, they're crowding each other out. They're not provi- providing the mast like they should be because they're stressed out. You know, all these different reasons. So what we really should do is take you know 10 to 30% of that middle um, and put it down toward the young end and then allow 10 to 20% to mature to become over-mature. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're just not there yet. And so there's a lot of risk of everything maturing at once and dying off at once um, and then resetting. So we'll reset just in time to have none of the young forest species left and we'll lose all the old growth species that we, you know, are moving toward or people, mm-hmm. people say that they want. But so anyway, the, because of that farm abandonment and that afforestation, things that like six hours a day of sunlight, you know, pioneer open grown early successional habitat plants, like all these pollinator plants, they just can't compete. They just, they just are not on the landscape. And then you add deer eating them all. So the remnants that are being eaten. And so that the land, the area where things are intensively managed and used and, and there's a lot of not just timber harvest, but a lot of disturbance, whether it's from agriculture, cat, you know, plowing cattle, uh, fire, you know, people used to burn hedgerows and stuff like that. And they're not doing that as much, which is, could be a problem. But anyway, um, the disturbance driven species have shifted West to where we're still using the land. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why the corn belt is so important yeah. you know, for I, monarchs. I, um, so whether you and, and butterflies across the board um, have declined by about half since the oh, 1980s. Wow. Um, so monarchs are doing worse than that, but most butterflies are not as cosmopolitan as as a monarch mm-hmm. or like a painted lady. Some of them that migrates, most of them stay local and they're resident. They overwinter as adults in the leaf litter, that sort of thing, or, or as uh, chrysalis in the leaf litter. Um, and so what you do on the landscape management-wise can have a big impact on them. So we've reduced what were once broad, widespread communities, whether you're talking about the plants or the animals that depend on them, and um, we've reduced them to small remnant populations, and then now they're really uh, susceptible to blinking out from mm-hmm. either a catastrophic fire, um, invasive plant, chemical application, you know, what have you, climate you know, what have you, there's, there's lots of different, uh, variables and factors there, I guess that could influence these things. I, I think part of the problem is with perception is that we're at a generation that most of the damage has occurred a couple generations previously. So you, mm-hmm. you grow up and this is what you know, and it is what, you know, it's all you've ever known, but it's yeah. not that far back that the damage was done that made all these changes when I think, what was it? The last passenger pigeon died in like 1914 or something mm-hmm. like that. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. but 
you know, you go back 20 years prior to that and there were hundreds and thousands of them, but the, the yeah. forest that they thrived in no longer exists. Or for us in New Jersey, uh, you go up to the Meadowlands and you think salt marsh, mm-hmm. but originally that was all freshwater mm-hmm. and it was an mm-hmm. Atlantic white cedar bog that the Dutch mm-hmm. uh, dammed to to farm and then mm-hmm. everything died because it became brackish <laughs> and, right. and, and yeah, became a, a prime prime area for invasive. So there's so many things that were affected. Even in New Jersey 20 years ago, there was a major shrub understory layer that no longer exists because of the building that have pushed deer mm-hmm. into yep. to certain areas. And it's, but that's what this generation has only ever known, but we're mm-hmm. not that far removed of what it's done to what, you know what i may have grown up with mm-hmm. it, it, sure. it's really not that not that far removed so it's 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 got to be hard to change that public perception i would imagine it is and it's 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 sort of like if you see somebody every day you don't notice changes but if you go away for a while and you come back and like oh they got a haircut yeah you know yeah. um it's you're you're constantly immersed in it the hardest thing to do is to analyze yourself <laughs> yeah <laughs> and, yeah and i agree where you agree. things that you're you're used to and you see all the time because it's it's little changes over time so you don't notice it like you know, I grew up around Richmond, just south of Richmond, Virginia, and I went away to school. And so every time I come back, there'd be like another five hundred houses. Mm. You know, no, <laughs> nobody else seemed to notice. You know, nobody else seemed to notice. But like the development was just running rampant. You know, yeah. and every time I come back, there's like, what, what's going on? Like, there's there's a new strip mall. Like, why is this? You know, why is this happening? You know, and um, but but people that are in it, they just get used to it, and it's it's like a death by a thousand cuts. You know, they just they don't realize it's going on or, or they don't see it as big of a problem because it's mm-hmm. not as drastic to them. The change isn't as, as noticeable. I, I but think, um, I think that's a great way yeah. to put it. But I think, yeah, in, in New Jersey, um, yeah, it, it's, it, people just don't, you, you have to get somebody that was, you know, say a baby boomer or older and ask them like, how many birds were there around when you were a kid? Mm-hmm. You know, they'll tell you there's a lot more than there were now. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I definitely agree. And that's what I'm wondering if after all of this, Tom and I were saying, like, to me, this time, social distancing, I was just telling my kids this weekend, kind of reminds mm-hmm. me of growing up in the 70s. You didn't have your entire week planned out for you. <laughs> and and right. you actually spent more time. I was like, you know, growing up, you know, the only thing we ever really did was go fishing or, yeah. uh, you know, there weren't video games. Mm-hmm. Wow. I'm sounding old, <laughs> but, <laughs> but it, you, you know, there was Last more, century. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there's, there's more of a, there was more of a focus on what you could do outside. And, and I think a lot of people are going back to that and they're noticing things and, you know, and then things are going to change. We're going to come out of this and it's not going to be business as usual for everyone. The, the landscape as a whole is going to change. Well, um, I think, yeah, people, yeah, they, they don't have a historic baseline and they're not students of history. And so they don't know what things used to be like. And, you know, and these, these issues aren't new. And I actually was reading a book it, it's called the butterfly people. And it was about these, these guys and gals in the you know, 1880s and not, you know, during the, the gilded age that were running around actually collecting butterflies, you know, mm-hmm. it's not overly popular today, but yeah. um, you know, they're, they, they were complaining about the sprawl eating up their best butterflying spots on Staten hmm. Island, well, on Long uh, Island, wow! You know, like you know, they used to go to the dairy farms that are now you know under skyscrapers. Yeah, um, and, and it's funny, like they were bemoaning urban development 140 years ago, you know. Um, but today, it's just it's just gone like crazy. I mean, yeah. you go you go to Europe, and there, there's a town that may have been there for a thousand years, and they're still surrounded by farmland. But for some reason, here in the states, progress equates to 
paving everything over in the last mm. 20 and 30. I, I don't know. I, I mean, it seems, it seems like a mistake. You know, it, we've only been here 400 years, but it's a, in the last few decades, we've really started accelerating this development. Yeah. Uh, and, and Jersey, and Jersey has been on the, you know, the front of that, you know, the many malls have been in New Jersey, right? So yeah. it's, you had to deal with that a lot longer than say the rest of the country. And so it's like, we should be learning from each other, but nobody talks to one another, well, especially across state lines. No, <laughs> but part of the problem is too, is when you start doing that, if it's never been done before, you don't know what the effects are going to be or the outcome is going to be. When they were paving everything in the fifties, they didn't mm-hmm. know what, what that would do to the waterways or, you know, it's common sense yeah. now or, or what it would do to the water quality. No one, mm-hmm. no one really knew. I'm sure when they were dumping into the waterways, they, <laughs> they knew, <laughs> but yeah. you know, but you don't know what the overall effect is going to be or, or how, mm-hmm. how much harder it's going to take to fix that once yeah. the damage is done. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's difficult to get from what's going on locally and scaling up to, you know, so like I, my work right now is at the, continental level so I, I come at things a little differently than say somebody that's concerned about what's going on in, in bergen county new jersey yeah. you know so it's or or what's going on in cape may um and so i see a lot how people do different things across the country and how what things might apply in one place or, or not and um you know things have been tried and, and so yeah sometimes i come across as like that's nah, not gonna work because i may have seen it try five other places but that doesn't mean it might work in this new place but you know, it's just uh, you have to take it for a grain of salt. You know, for what it's worth. But like my uncle, he talks about um, you know when they were kids in, in Missouri, and they talk about when the Missouri River was dry, they just thought it didn't rain. You know, it's, it's dry, and they were happy. But but now, <laughs> as as adults, as adults, they found out that the Corps of Engineers holding water back, and now they're mad. <laughs> you yeah. know, so it's it's you know ignorance is bliss, I guess, on some things. But yeah, we just don't know, or what you're told may not be what's really going on, um, or, or it's more complex than people are able to talk about. Um, and that's that's what these butterfly populations. It's it's not any one thing, but habitat loss is the major factor, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and just being locally rare anyway, you know, endemic having a small range just naturally um, doesn't help you. Um, but then when you go in and, and annihilate the habitat and put in something completely non-conducive to their reproduction, then people go, "Well, it happened." <laughs> <laughs> and you know, there's a reason why the, the really the the one the prime example of a butterfly that's gone extinct in modern times due to development is in California where the habitat is very naturally fragmented and, 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 um, vulnerable to, um, loss because it's just, it's a very small area, very high endemics because of the way the topography is. And you come in and you start building houses, you just run the risk of, of, um, of, uh, causing things to blink out. Yeah, and, before you realize what's going on. No, and it's not just hey, we we destroyed habitat. Let's put new habitat in. It, it's it's got to be specific. They were used to a mm-hmm. certain thing blooming at a certain time, if, especially if they're right. migrating. And if you change that or alter that, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to feed off of that. Or or yeah. you know, it it changes everything. There has to be. You you couldn't take away like as a human all of our food sources and then just introduce all new food and say here you yeah. go and here then, you go yeah and 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 just expect that everyone that. would survive yeah you know yeah. or it's you and, know and it's like the, you take crops that that you produce over the summer and they disappear and now you only have crops that show up over the winter <laughs> you know yeah. and it's like oh I, what do i do well that's why i think it's been very interesting when when they applied the joint venture model which is a bird conservation format to monarchs because and and i think people need to think a little bit more about that too maybe revisit some of the reasons why it's called the monarch joint venture because um the these populations act a lot more like a migratory bird than than other butterflies Mm. 
um, you know, you have to have the stopover sites and you have to have the overwintering area. You know, they have to have the wintering grounds, say, you know, whereas most butterflies, you don't really have to manage in that way. They're not crossing state lines like that. Mm, yeah. um, so it's, it's a little different animal than what we're really used to. And so what we're at risk of losing is that migratory phenomenon. So I guess to go back and actually answer Tom, Tom's question is, you know, start in Mexico, they overwinter in Mexico, and then they come up, spend the first generation in the deep south, which is actually what we're working through right now. The, the overwintering population that spent the time in Mexico is actually dying off now. Hmm. Um, they're, and they're, they're young, will colonize farther north, and you'll do that, you know, for, and then and then the fifth generation uh, in the fall will actually live longer and then and not reproduce and will migrate all the way back to Mexico, and they've never been there. So it's sort of one of these things huh. like there's, there's still things in nature we don't understand completely. So that's kind of cool. Um, and then there is a population there in California that's, you know, will migrate from interior, the Intermountain West and go to um, the California coast over winter. And then now Arizona and some places like that. And then we've, there's a, a resident population in peninsular Florida um, that's there all the time. Oh, wow. So, it, yeah. It, so the more I learned about monarch, monarchs, it actually made me think of the, the bird, the red knot with its migratory mm-hmm. path and for us in new jersey it, it's it's a stopover so it can feed on horseshoe crab and as soon as the horseshoe yep. crab population went down how it affected the migratory path and and just the overall numbers of red knot uh mm-hmm. it's it's you know people just don't think of those symbiotic relationships in nature sometimes yeah well i mean you mentioned you mentioned the pasture pigeon and the carolina parakeet you know and they're, they're classic examples of like this this extinction vortex you know, where you get a, to a minimum viable population, and then it's just you set it in motion. You know, you push the rock off the cliff, and yeah. it's just going to tank. And there may still be a lot of them, but now it's they're just, they're just sliding down that slope, mm-hmm. and it's just really hard to recover from that. And and you know, things like red knot and the horseshoe crab, like that's a very delicate balance. It takes overabundant horseshoe crab numbers to have minimum maintenance level amounts of food for the red knot. Um, and so that's that's sort of what's going on. Uh, with the monarchs is like how much milkweed do we need on the landscape to create yeah. a swell of population that's enough to withstand all the risks and all the the mort- mortality factors out there whether it's predation disease getting hit by a car you know what have you um and then and then surviving the winter in mexico um so yeah it's just it's very there's a lot of factors and a lot of variables and it's hard to control and um you know like i said i don't i don't think that monarchs are going to go extinct you know, they've been introduced in New Zealand and Europe and and Hawaii and you know and and then we've got resident populations. We ha- there will be monarchs, but what we're at risk of losing is this migratory phenomenon mm-hmm. where they're they're doing this multi generational movement. It's not really a migration because they're you know not we're not one individual is going and going back, but it's this multi generational movement that um, we're at risk of losing of losing. And that's important to save. So speaking of which, you, you mentioned certain ways that that people can get involved and, and you hear grant money and people might think, Oh no, they got the money taken care of. It's, but yeah, no, people, <laughs> no you, you don't. And, and people can get involved. What are some of the best ways that our listeners that are listening now can get involved to help? Well, I mean, for monitors in the rough or for Audubon international programs, generally, you know, we're working on water quality and, and um, education outreach and all these different initiatives. Um, you know, just tell people about Audubon international monitors in the rough. Um, the websites are just those, uh, same name, you know, AudubonInternational.org. Um, and you can see what we're doing and, and how we work with golf courses and, and others um, to to improve their environmental stewardship. And, um, you know, in terms of Monarchs in the Rough, 
you know, we're looking for people to, to be, to serve as volunteer monitors. You know, once we get through the social distancing aspects of what's going on this spring, I think we'll have some time, um, as you know, providing everything starts to continues to calm down, um, you know, into August, September, October, where we can still go out and we can count milkweed stems. You know, they may be senescent, you know, but they'll still be there and, and hopefully we'll be able to get some monitoring, uh, maybe still some butterflies on the southward migration at least sort of start to quantify um, what's going on out there. Anyway, so people can um, help be volunteer monitors to the monitor joint venture to get involved with that, um, the integrated monarch monitoring protocol. And, and there's also just, um, you know, reach out to golf courses, tell them about the program, tell them how much you appreciate the work that they are doing, say if they're already in Monarchs for the Rough um, or, or other environmental stewardship programs. It's just get out there, see what's going on in the golf course, learn about what's going on in your community and, and, you know, come at it from a collaborative uh, angle rather than, than combative. I mean, it's start that conversation mm-hmm. and don't be accusatory, you know, but try to find out what's going on and, and educate yourself about um, these different practices. And, you know, the golf course superintendents are good stewards of the land and they want to do the right thing and they do care about the land that that's under their care. So Knowledge is power. Yeah. So we're, right. we're and we're definitely going to on our website after this when we publish the, the, the broadcast or podcast, we're going to list the links your links under that mm-hmm. so people will Appreciate know that, yeah. uh where to find you and, and how to get involved so do you, you want to yeah, ask now, now this is the uh the, the obligatory yeah last question of the the podcast okay and i don't think i included this on the list i sent you too <laughs> but oh thanks a lot it's uh it's always the last question yeah we're, we're asking everybody what is your favorite native plant Slash, you can include a bird if you want to. Yes. That's our our new rule. Oh, yes. Everyone's like birds, so <laughs> we let them yeah. pick okay, yeah, a yeah. bird. Well, I mean, you couldn't ask me with the, you know, one of the other 724 species of butterfly or the Mexico or the monarchs. <laughs> um, no, but, um, no, but, um, I I like any remnant stand of a wild population of something. You know, mm-hmm. I think it's that's interesting. You know, to be walking around the woods and be like, oh, look at that. You know, um, but mountain mint is a pretty good one for okay. me. Um, I, I like that. I mean, it's, it's a magnet for a variety of different pollinators. Uh, yeah, but I, mean, I, I like the usual suspects, especially the ones that we've been using in our mixes, Tom. But you know, the um, I, I like I like butterfly weed, um, and I like um, uh, Monarda, you know, Fistulosa. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I mean, there's there's a lot of good plants out there yeah. that are just butterfly magnets that people can can put on their property to to help these things. I mean, there's talking about things that people can do you know just plant a small butterfly garden on your in your yard you know we talk about golf courses and how much space that they take up you know that's 2.3 million acres well there's 45 million acres of residential lawn um so we really need to start working on that um but anyway so my favorite bird um i I am a fan of of bobwhite quail Mm -hmm. um you know but again let's pick underdogs that are tanking oh, yeah. like, well, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know but um you know so my, it won't be around long the way that things are going but no i think that a lot of this you know upland game bird habitat and butterfly mm. habitat new tropical migratory bird habitat you know, if you read what doug calamy writes writes from the university of delaware about um you know how many caterpillars it takes to raise a chickadee brood and things like that you know it's it's what eighteen thousand or something it's yeah. it's an inordinate amount of biomass that you need to have out there on the landscape and you know overwhelmingly they're moth caterpillars but still it's the yeah. same habitat yeah. um and and the beauty of butterflies is that they're wildlife that you want around your house mm-hmm. um they don't sting they don't bite um nobody's allergic to them um so as, i just think that there's a lot that we can learn from too and they're very sensitive to um environmental change but you know birds you know i i, I like bobwhite quail 
Very cool. nice. Cool. Uh, you know, it's funny when you said remnant stand of, of native plants. It was fun to see Tom excited this morning because he came across <laughs> a native stand of Jack in the Pulpit on yeah. one of the farms yeah. that we didn't know existed. And, and I'll actually I've, – I've thought about saying this earlier, and I didn't want to cut you off, but I was uh, I was sitting up against a, a sweet gum tree and – and on the edge of a marsh and or in a swamp, I guess, and I just like kicked out my foot, and I realized I was kicking like an old fence post with a little bit of barbed wire in it, and it just clicked. <laughs> I'm like, these trees weren't here 80 years ago. Yeah. This is these That's are right. like not that much older than me in the scheme of of the United States. Yeah, and uh, yeah. it's amazing how it's something that it's always been there as long as I've been alive, but it wasn't there really that long. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's right. But, um, so we're wrapping up here. I know when we were emailing the other day and you were saying, oh, how am I going to fill an hour? Well, we went almost <laughs> we went an hour and a half. Hour and a half, yeah. <laughs> so, almost. All right. But, uh, yeah, you, you, did, pulled you it did, out. did good. We did. But um, we just want to give you, if you have any like final thoughts or, or just one last thing you want to get off your mind, now's your time. Yeah, I mean, I just you know want to bring it back around and reiterate what y'all were talking about in the beginning. It's, it's Earth, Earth Day tomorrow. It's Earth Week. Um, you know, everybody's trying to figure out something to do. Um, social distancing wise, and I think gardening is, is just a good thing to get outside, get your hands dirty, and, and do something good for the, the environment there mm-hmm. uh, locally at home. So. Awesome. Brian, how about you? Uh, you know, yeah, I, I say this almost every episode. The, the amount that I learn, I, I just feel so privileged to work with such fantastic people in this industry. Um, and not just one aspect, it's not just trees, um, it, it's bees, it's it's uh, butterflies it's so many aspects and and every day every podcast i learned so much that it's it's overwhelming almost so it's mm-hmm. i just thank you for the yeah. the for for sharing so much knowledge today and 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 i hope our listeners got as much out of this as as we did because every every episode for me it's it's life-changing yeah almost yeah well, so. thanks, Fran. Yeah, I appreciate appreciate y'all having me on, Tom. Yeah. Fran, it's, it's, it's been great talking with you, and um, look forward to catching up. Yeah. Maybe this summer, come down and see the the wildfire. Yeah, we would we would love this. I'm definitely you know I I picture each of these podcasts as making a new friend. So yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so definitely we have to we have to have you to the nursery, mm-hmm. and and we can spend some time. Yeah. So and the the last thing I guess my final thought was. I was really glad that you brought up uh, Dwayne Estes and, uh, and Southeastern Grasslands Initiative because mm. he's quickly, just over the last year or two, become one of my favorite people to follow on, on Facebook. Um, he just has a way, maybe it's the accent, his southern accent, <laughs> where he, he has a way of describing how important these, these native habitats are, um, not just to, to wildlife but to, to people as well. And, um, and he was one of the first people that really taught me that uh, that it isn't just about planting trees; it's all different plants. The, there's so much of a focus on on reforestation. Oh, we're gonna you buy our mattress, we're gonna plant a tree. You buy our shoes, we're gonna plant a tree. And yes, there's so many other plants that provide so much different wildlife value, and sometimes even more wildlife value than these trees do. And and that's another part of his message that he really promotes. Uh, I guess well, South Southeastern Grasslands Initiative. He's not. Yes. He's talking about grass, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not trees. And it's good. It's good to know that there's other people that randomly stop on the side of the road to look at flowers too. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and so. I will point out, I actually I was talking to him on the phone a couple months ago, and I was telling him to to hook up with you guys if they were had any prairie remnants that were on golf courses because they could expand on them through your program. Nice, yeah. So, 
But um, no, I appreciate that. Yeah. No, it's 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 all well good. And you know, you bring up a great point though, just quickly that you know we're doing these in the, in a former life we're doing these riparian buffer plantings, and you know, a good person to talk to if, if you haven't recently. They're talking about the native grass and four benefits of, of riparian buffers being non trees is actually John Park at New Jersey Audubon. Yeah. You know, we're not we're not affiliated. You know, they're mm-hmm. both independent Audubon organizations, but um, no, John is very much into the um, not trees around the around the <laughs> yeah. uh, riparian buffers. He's he's on our, our list of of hopeful future guests. Yes, <laughs> so, yes. Well, good. But, you can pin yeah. him down. Good luck pinning him down. Yeah. We we deal <laughs> with John, so yeah. yeah. But uh, but anyway, thank thank you guys for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed listening to Marcus Gray and learning about Monarchs in the Rough. Uh, if you're a golfer or know a golfer, we hope that you share the details of this program with them, uh, especially now because there's only six more acres to commit, so <laughs> you got to act fast. Yeah. But um, thank you guys for listening to, to the Native Plants Healthy Planet uh, podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. Can, can we say who the next guest is? Oh, yeah, go ahead. go ahead. No, go ahead. I'll let you introduce Well, I don't want to mispronounce his last name. I was going to let Either you Either do I because I, I don't know how to pronounce it. <laughs> But uh, <laughs> we're we're gonna surprise you guys. We'll okay. when he comes on, we'll uh, okay. You'll be surprised. Yes, I don't. I'm excited about this next guest because yeah. to me, he's a rock star. Yeah. So I'm I'm really excited. We'll we'll share it with you, Marcus, after we're, All right, <laughs> when we're done. Good. So um, uh, we want to thank Stephen Marr again for our theme music. You can follow us on Twitter at Pineland Nursery. You can follow us on Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ. Instagram at Pinelands Nursery, and you can follow our YouTube page, which is Pinelands Nursery as well. You can listen to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast directly at www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com. You can also listen to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, or iHeartRadio, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, YouTube, or you can just ask Alexa to play the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast. Make sure you like, follow, and comment on a or give us a review. Uh, Five star reviews only. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> and we're we're aiming to get in the top ten on that Apple Podcast list. So. It's 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 feasible to yeah. me. It's right around the corner. Yeah. So. After this one, this is going to be the one that pushes us over yes. the top. Yes. So thanks again for joining us. I'm Tom, and I am Fran. Thanks again, everyone. We will see you next time, and until then, keep it native. Thank you for listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planted Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Remember to like, share, follow, and comment.